Hello and welcome to episode 46 of The World is Upside Down Can DevOps Save Us. I'm here with the lovely and talented Astrid Counte. Thank you, Coraline, but I think I should remind you that our show is actually called Greater Than Code. You think I would know that by now after 46 episodes? I'm doing <laughs> my okay. best. We're all working on it. I have empathy for your struggle, Coraline. Thank you. I'm, I'm also here today with my great friend, Janelle Klein. Hi, and I'm here to introduce Aria Stewart. Aria is an unschooler, performer, queer activist, avid cyclist, and theater nerd, originally from the mountains of Colorado, now living in Somerville, Massachusetts, with her husband and two cats. So they started their own internet service provider, worked in web development for companies large and small, and consult on diversity and development process. Welcome, Aria. Hi, thank you. Nice to be here. So we normally start this show asking a few questions about just your background, your story of where you came from and how you turned into the person you are today. Awesome. That's kind of tough to trace because I've been around this industry a long time and how I got here is a lot of little details. Don't be shy. Tell us everything. (laughs) I was born in Denver. I grew up in the suburbs for the first 13 years of my life. I had access to computers and school computer labs occasionally. I was unschooled uh, after fourth grade. That is, I didn't actually go to school at all. But until that point, I was in and out of the public school system, and uh, my parents were quite willing to fight for me to get access to things. So I got access to the computer labs before and after school. I had computers at home. I had a lot of interest, and I was kind of the quintessential 80s nerd kid in a lot of ways. Right there Uh, with you. (laughs) Which is interesting in the way that played out later on in my life. But as part of my uh, unschooling, I ended up taking a part-time class at the high school on computer programming, and the teacher sent uh, a few of us to a computer programming contest. Uh, sponsored by HP, and they give some sort of coding challenge, and you have like four hours to complete it kind of a thing. And we didn't place. turns out that we were all stymied by the fact that none of us had a calendar for reference, and the task involved date math, so we could not check our work. Uh, And this was in the days before computers had calendars built in, and so we literally couldn't had no way to check our work with the stuff available, and we weren't allowed to leave the room or use outside references. So we ended up not placing because we couldn't check our work. But we got a participation t-shirt, which turned out to be one of the most important things and objects in my life. When I was 13, we moved to this little town up in the mountains of Colorado called Ridgeway. And the same month that we moved there, an internet service provider opened up. This was 1995. We were just getting settled in there. I'd had um, sort of internet access through local libraries and things in the Denver area. But when we moved out west, there wasn't much in the way of internet service or anything like that. So an internet service provider opening up was a big deal. And so I marched over there one of the first days asking if I could sign up for internet service. And I happened to be wearing the t-shirt from the computer programming contest, and I got offered a job on the spot. So I'm this 13-year-old boy uh, walking into a, a little tech company in the mountains of Colorado, and I get offered a job. And I'm an unschooler, so I actually have my afternoons free. I don't actually have classes and things I have to be attending. So I ended up start working nearly full time when I'm 13 years old. Some weeks it was 20, sometimes some weeks it was 30 hours a week, and sometimes it was a full 40-hour week doing tech support, answering how do I get my email, how do I set up Netscape Navigator, what is this trumpet windsock thing, and do I need it? Uh, I was cleaning up my desktop and threw it away, and now my internet doesn't work. And this was in the days when getting on the internet at all was sometimes kind of a miracle. Uh, computers were cantankerous, modems were unpleasant. And when I started, the entire town was connected to the internet via a single 56 kilobit per second leased line. The entire town was sharing 56K. Not too long afterward, we upgraded to a T1. But even so, by today's standards, you have faster data service on any given cell phone in the middle of nowhere. 
T1 is no longer fast internet. And we did some interesting experiments. That company was kind of unique and in a unique place. So we played with doing internet service by wireless. We ended up like going up on the side of the mountain and placing wireless antennas facing down into town and one facing down into the service provider. And uh, people out in the valley near the town would get these expensive devices and an antenna pointed up at the side of the mountain. And we ended up getting high-speed internet to people in like 1995 and 1996 in a town of a 1,000 people in the mountains of Colorado, about six hours from Denver. So like I had high-speed internet in my home uh, a full five years before folks in Denver could get it. Uh, it was a really an interesting place and time to grow up, and I had a lot of opportunities being in this weirdly small place. But uh, the way it started into my web career was a, a couple of years later, my boss puts out one of those O'Reilly books with the animal on the cover and slaps it down on my desk and says, can you learn this? And I flipped through a little bit, and the book is uh, CGI with Pearl, and uh, flipped through the book a little bit. I had that book. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's, it was one of the quintessential books of the era, you know, that and the HTML guide and a couple of other standard references that every web programmer ended up with on their desks. That part of why O'Reilly got as popular as they did was that they were the ones producing these books at all. And so he slaps it down on my desk and says, can you learn this? And I thumb through it and say, I, yeah, I think I can figure this out. And there was my career built as a web programmer, and I've been doing it ever since. So uh, I actually hit 21 years in the industry this summer which is an absurdly long time for somebody who's in their 30s. But it's because I got started at age 13 is when I got into the internet service business and uh, web programming now. Uh, I was 15. So Aria, I have a very similar background to yours, by the way. Out of that experience, did you develop any superpowers? And if so, what are they? I think the biggest thing I learned in all of that was diagnostics. Back in those days, there was no such thing as a front-end developer. There was no such thing even as a web developer. You were just a software developer. I had to figure out Netscape Enterprise Server at the same time I was figuring out JavaScript, at the same time I was figuring out how to run, uh, use VI on this old Solaris server. And so there's no part of the stack that is unfamiliar anymore. Like the web programming has gotten so complicated and so large, and we use this incredible stack of tools, and yet I was there through the development of all of these. So like, even so, you come back to the server today and it's like this is familiar i've used things like this i've used a dozen things like this uh, the first time i came across server-side javascript was not when node.js came out in 2010 i had used server-side javascript in 1997 it had a special name it was like rhino or something like that well rhino this yeah. was back in the days of netscape enterprise server there was actually the spider monkey engine was embedded in their server which is the same uh, javascript engine that firefox used for a good long time which was the original JavaScript engine. That's the one that Brandon Ike wrote originally. And uh, they didn't just stuff it into their web browser. They stuffed it in their server. They stuffed it everywhere. And so this JavaScript kept popping up in all of these weird little places, even back in the 90s. And so I learned some server-side JavaScript programming all the way back then. And it was terrible. JavaScript didn't give you error messages. It just didn't work when things didn't work. Syntax error, you might get the words syntax error. And that was the only clue you had. You had no idea where, in what file, <laughs> what was the, going on. But we dug in and we, we figured out a lot. And I developed some kind of superpower debugging skills now. So when something goes wrong, I can tell where in the stack it is and what kind of bug it is. It's like, I've seen that before. I've seen that before for like 15 years ago. And we've just now come around again to the same kinds of bugs because now we're doing things that way again. All the computers are faster now and the software is better. So it makes sense to do it that way. And it didn't at the time. I have a feeling that people who do have the kind of level experience um, of 15 or 20 years of experience 
who basically started their careers before there was specialization. I think we have a different approach to problem solving because we're able to visualize the entire ecosystem for a given app in a way that people who have focused on backend or focused on DevOps or focused on frontend, they haven't necessarily developed yet. Yeah, and I think that's something that's interesting as we start teaching and as we start passing knowledge on to other to newer generations is that keeping in mind that the context we operated in is so very, very different. Despite a lot of the same skills applying, we really have to work hard to listen to what people's actual experiences are and listen to where they are placed and give them advice that makes sense in that context and not this gift from on high orthodoxy sort of mindset that so many uh, older programmers have had where they grew up with the one true way on the one true system and now we're just replicating that. We operate in kind of fundamentally different ways. We're doing a lot of the same work, but in very, very new ways with very different team structures. And the way the knowledge is spread across our teams and through our ecosystem is very, very different. So I have a question for you that I've been thinking about as I'm listening to you. Like in terms of diagnostic troubleshooting, you you mentioned this sort of expert intuition effect where a system becomes really intimately familiar. And then these like ideas that are you know, you see an error and you, you kind of have that intuition about the system that's broken. But at mm-hmm. the same time, you learn the art of diagnostic troubleshooting itself, right? Mm-hmm. And you seem very self-aware. I would love to hear you like sort of describe your meta thinking process as you go through troubleshooting a problem. I know that's Most kind of an abstract question. If yeah. You're- Most of it ends up being in eliminating possibilities because you're starting off with anything could be wrong here and we don't know what it is and you need to hone in on what the actual problem is. And sometimes that involves things like a binary search through the code. What happens if you just delete the last half of the code? Do you still hit the bug? And so you can reduce your search space by just like mechanical, like try this part, try this part. If the part works, then the bug is in that part. If the uh, code doesn't work, well, there you go. You've narrowed it down a little bit. You also get this idea of trying to eliminate systems. Can you replicate the problem without one of the pieces at all? If it's a front-end bug in a piece of JavaScript, can you eliminate the server? Can you run the test case down? Can you shrink it down so that the other part of the system isn't even involved? Or can you dig under the hood and make the same request the JavaScript is and uh, break it down that way? But then at the same time, there's this holistic mindset that you can do at the same time. And so one of my favorite tools to reach for is actually TCP dump or ngrep. Type a word into a web form and have ngrep set up to see if it can even spot that on the network. So when I hit submit, did the thing even leave the, leave the browser? Looking at the, the system as a whole, did the data make it from end to end? And being able to eliminate, eliminate parts based on what you see there. So I tend to alternate from these like trying to hone in sorts of actions to the whole system. Can I observe it all the whole way through sorts of things? And so alternating those two mindsets and talking about them has been really good. We end up, it, it feels like slicing things both horizontally and vertically uh, and being able to hone in on them that direction. And it's, it's an interesting process because it gives you a little bit more information that lets you make those intuitive leaps and also explain those intuitive leaps of, well, hold on just a sec. Here's a very simple but powerful tool. If we look for this one specific thing we know is going to be true for this hypothesis we're testing is true, well, let's just check that real quick. And we can eliminate these hypotheses very, very quickly by alternating those two mindsets. How do you even begin to teach that? Like, I have a lot of trouble with early career developers that I mentor, and I can't even teach them to read a stack trace. You have to have the desire to do your job well. 
And you have to have the feeling that you're connected. The doing those things actually does let you do your job well. Quite often people get pushed into parts of their job that they don't love, don't enjoy, or don't find valuable. In particular, women get shoved into all kinds of these side roles, uh, project management and all of these things. And a lot of developer culture being built on contempt of contempt for other roles, contempt for other specializations has led people to really not want to seek what's outside the box of their current experience. Uh, it really isolates and separates us. Some of those learn, wanting, getting people to want to learn those things is giving them the psychological safety to explore outside their box and reward them for doing so. Because while specialization has let us get far, far, far more productive, it has also had some really interesting other effects in that it has isolated us when we try to enforce strict boundaries between jobs. Um, no, that's the designer's job to decide whether or not that should be 10 pixels or 12. No, that's the front-end engineer's job to validate that form. Never mind that the back-end engineer also has to validate the form because networks are not to be trusted. And so we really have to work on making sure that we have overlap in our skill sets and overlap in our communication. We have to work with people in the next layer and the stack down. So our front-end engineers have to sit with the designers, not just receive orders from, but sit with designers and work on things. The front-end engineers need to sit with the back-end engineers and talk through their problems and say, well, we just got this large request or we find this bug and we were thinking of solving it this way and they write, you know, five pages of code and the back-end engineer says, well, if we just didn't send that in the first place, we could, you know, not have that happen. A lot of these things, we would end up with a lot more uh, cohesive development culture. It would let people find and learn those skills a lot more easily because like we have a front end engineer here at work and she's quite brilliant, but doesn't particularly like back end work, but also keeps getting handed tickets that isolate her from the back end work. And we need to start dividing up the work better in a way that would let her dive in just a little bit and be successful in that back end work. This whole conversation is really fascinating to me because as somebody who is newer to development, I think that what tends to happen is you hear the opposite, that you need to not think more broadly. You need to be very focused on something so that you can build up your expertise. But I have found that that's a struggle for me because of the same things that you're talking about, Ari, of like wanting to understand how the system works, wanting to mm-hmm. do my job well so that I'm not just only good at one thing. So what would be your advice to people who are trying to get good at their job, but also want to be able to understand more about the entire system and not just one particular specialization? They're not separate, but you have to realize that nobody can know everything about everything. Our world's too large and too complicated. And so it's okay to seek things out in relevance first order. If you're a front-end developer, learning about how networks work, for the parts that are relevant to a front-end developer, how HTTP works, what latency and bandwidth are and how they relate to each other, those are important. Learning the details of TCP IP and what a SYN packet is and an ACK packet is aren't going to be as interesting or as relevant. And so it's completely okay to start digging down and understand how the next layers down relate to yours and figure out that the other layer exists, that it is distinct, and then what the interface and boundary between your, uh, your layer and their layer is. And then know a bit about on the other side of the fence. But you don't have to know over the other fence on the other side of, the, of their field. A web developer is very rarely going to have to know the details about CPU architectures or things down into the machine. Our world is isolated from them. We work on phones and tablets and computers where the, where the details of CPUs are so completely abstract and distant that we don't care. We really don't care. 
I have a friend who takes exception to that, actually. And um, she talks about having empathy for the machine, for actually thinking about the impact that the code that we write has on the hardware. Are we making people's laptops spin up and overheat? Mm -hmm. Are we putting undue pressure on servers such that, you know, DevOps has to keep adding hardware because of our, you know, inefficiencies in our code? So, you know, she she posits that it's, of course, important to focus on end users, but it's also worth considering the impact that our code has on the metal. Yeah, I think there's a tension there. While web developers don't need to know the details of CPU architectures, we do need to know what is spending time on the CPU and what is spending time drawing and what isn't. We phrase it differently. We're thinking about frames per second quite often or smoothness of animations, but it turns out that those are the same thing. And so we do care about some part of it, but we don't have to care about what the instruction set is. We have to care about how much memory we're allocating, but we don't have to care about pointer sizes. So I've got this question that's been burning on my mind. Something you said about how isolation ends up leading to this cultural effect of contempt. I mean, that's a pretty strong statement. And I've certainly seen that happening all around me within the context of the organization, but also very much in this context of this tribal splitting that we're seeing happening all around us right now. And what you see is a rise in contempt and shaming and things that are really disturbing, you know, in our culture. And I'm wondering what kind of things that, you know, if you were to think about like the systems that are driving that kind of behavior, where do you see this connection with isolation leading to contempt? I'd love to hear your answer to that. I think there's a particular kind of isolation where we abstract humans into roles. Often in development and in our jobs, we're busy. And so we we try to divide, ta- and to be efficient, we try to divide tasks up so that we can do as much as we can at once. So each person is do- using their full output. The system of, extra- of extraction that is our uh, modern business world is trying to get the most out of things. And those things include people. And so we put an abstraction there. This person is the project manager. You make requests to them by filing a ticket in JIRA, and they will tell the developers what to do. Um, The developers can take tickets from JIRA, but they have to do it in priority order. And talking to the PM directly is an exception. It may be in in a healthy team. It's probably a frequent exception. But even so, the structure is that we want to reduce the unneeded communication. And so what we've done is we've created an abstraction. The project manager as a person is now operating as the project manager role and in trying to be as efficient as possible. We lose a little bit of the humanity. And sometimes that's needed because getting a task done isn't about being the full human in the moment. We have the rest of our lives. There's a lot of, you know, we can't be all things at all times. And so we can wear many hats. But there's a place where it becomes pathological where somebody is seen only as the role. And we see it in companies, uh, 60, 70, 80 person companies and up. This is one of the failures of corporate the corporate world is that people who are not in the same room more often get reduced to their role. The finance person, the marketing guy, we reduce people to just those roles. And I think this plays out in our culture, a broader culture too, of the people nearest us, our family, our full people, hopefully, uh, if our families are functional. We see their opportunities and trajectories of growth. We see their fears and things. But the waiter at the restaurant or the waitress or the barista at a coffee shop 
Uh, we might see a little bit of their attitude or their style, but we don't see their hopes, their dreams, their fears, and we don't see how they want to grow and change as people. And then people even further from us, the ones we don't interact with uh, on any kind of day-to-day schedule. And in places like where our society is super segregated, um, I live in one of the most segregated cities in the United States. I don't see people who aren't white nearly often enough. I see uh, non-queer people on a re- relatively frequent basis. But a lot of the non-queer people in my life, I'm quite often the only queer person that they see in any kind of regularity. And so I am always unknown. I am, and in a lot of ways, I play a role. I play a a role of clown or weird outsider. And in fact, weird outsider is a role I've always been very comfortable in. But even so, it's a role, and it's easy to get hidden behind that role. And it's not a far stretch from there to go from relatively benign roles to ones where there are fear and contempt. Uh, We end up with uh, stereotypes and some really negative labels. And people say some really hateful things because they depersonalize those people into their roles, the roles that they play in the the world around them. And so uh, it can be very terrible. And one of the ways to fight that is to work together. That's been one of the longest studied ways to reduce the amount of hate in a community is to get people to work together. When you have a shared goal and a common task, sitting down and working on it together brings people together, unless you have something driving the contempt at that point of this work is stupid, or I don't want to be working on this. No, there are other factors there, but people who actually want to work on the same things or who actually want to achieve the same goal working together, they very often become friends. Like it is, It's one of those things that is almost inevitable given that setup. I feel like corporations try to address that by adopting corporate values or setting, you know, oh, our our quarterly goal is X, but it feels to me like in my experience at GitHub plays into this, but other companies too, there's a disconnect between stated goals of an organization and the actual goals of the individuals doing the work. And as a software developer, I may not care about a 5% uptick in revenue. Of course it affects me, but that's not really tied to my goals in in that role. I have an impact on it through the software I create, but my goal might be to, you know, get this application out the door or, you know, develop skills in Swift, or I have so many varied goals. It feels like corporate goals are, you know, an attempt to get people to work together and break down these barriers, but they fall short for some reason. Yeah, there's a bunch of factors there. I mean, corporate goals are quite often too broad. They're not tangible, or if they are, they are not meaningful to the people. They are abstract. They are far off. They are quite often capitalist. Like we live in a culture where that's how we fund businesses. We live in a, in a way where you have to make money as a business. That is the goal. That is the purpose. And you care about revenues, but if they don't materially affect the people, they're not their goals. But on the upside, humans can have multiple goals. It's okay to be working toward increased revenue for the company even if you won't feel that goal deeply. But if you can align people's personal goals and their team's goals with the company's overall goal, that's when you end up being successful. And sometimes this can be very oppressive when we try to force people's personal goals into a narrow shape. You get a lot of corporate mentorship programs, a lot of things like that. Yeah, you end up erasing people and trying to force their goals to be aligned with the corporate world. And I think this is where a lot of discrimination can come from. This is where people stop feeling like they can bring their whole selves to work because if they admit that they have goals separate from the corporations, they feel pushed aside. But then also a, a more mindful company, a more humane company 
may find more clever ways to align those goals. Because there are a lot of places where it's a win-win. We're at a stage in development of our culture where a lot of the easy wins have been found. And so finding win-win scenarios where somebody, where everybody wins instead of somebody winning at the cost of somebody else, they're getting harder to find. Competition is fierce. And quite often that means then that if you do want something, you're actually going to be taking it away from another company. Uh, that's what competition is. Or maybe you're just extracting it from your employees. Maybe you're winning at the cost of your employees' health or happiness. Pushing for extreme efficiency is really, it's dangerous. But it's also where we're at in our culture right now. Um, it's a joke among some people, but also serious. Uh, that's what late-stage capitalism is, is the easy wins have been made, and now we are, now it's eating itself. So, Aria, you talked about the walls that we built between each other and how people sort of um, start being perceived by the role that they play instead of as whole human beings. And I remember when when DevOps was new, it seemed like one of the founding principles was that there should not be this barrier between a developer and a sysadmin, that um, the responsibility should be spread or sort of smeared across what had been really strong organizational divisions before that. Part of this comes from the uh, transition into cloud computing, too. It used to be that system administrators, they had a culture of keeping things up all of the time. You buy expensive computers that last forever, very durable, very reliable, and you protect them like you work very, very hard to control access. You don't want to rebuild them. They're not replaceable. These servers, like the ones I grew up with in the ISP, these little servers, like by today's standards, a cell phone is more powerful. They cost $20,000 a piece. These were the entire capital investment in the system for the year when we replaced servers. They were incredibly expensive. Um, replacing hard disks was in the thousands of dollars. It was an absolutely gargantuan uh, expenditure. And so the way we ran systems was very, very protective. And we formed entire teams to protect them from the developers, to protect them from the users. And th that grew up into our modern system administrators and security professionals. The sharp division of that role comes from the expense of the hardware. If you have a $20,000 piece of hardware, you share it with all of the other users. And then if you break a $20,000 piece of hardware, not only have you broken the hardware, you've also caused an inconvenience for those other users. And so there's, you set up a lot of mutual distrust and that's, that created the old, the old guard of our, of our culture. And then with cloud computing, that changed. Computers are now infinitely replaceable. The hardware is virtualized and abstracted. It's sitting in a server room somewhere in Northern Virginia or Oregon or San Jose. And when you want a new server, you just type a command into an API and it builds a new one. And you can throw away the old and it will be recycled for somebody else's use. Multiple tenancy uh, sharing the systems is done at a very high and abstract way. So as far as you're concerned, you're operating on a, on a computer that nobody else uses and uh, you're in complete control of. And so that has that capability changed our culture some. But even so, we had a culture set up previously of protecting servers and of being a strong assistant in was a separate role. And developers uh, and system administrators had been pitted against each other by their organizations. Um, the keys to the kingdom were handed to the system administrators, and they were very, very stingy about handing them out to developers. No, you have to prove you are worthy to use this machine in, a, in an unrestricted capacity. Because when we don't, somebody breaks it, and it causes an outage for everybody. And so develop, DevOps came along, and the DevOps mindset was it was really trying to spread that out because the old reasons for being no longer existed. And this is a thing we see time and time again in the industry. The old the old reason we did a thing 
no longer applies because technology has changed, because our culture has changed, because uh, the economics have changed quite often. Servers are cheap. Even the hardware is cheap uh, in ways. But yeah, it, we are in, in a period of increasing cultural change in a lot of places. But actually, development culture is not one of them, I don't think. This is a case where uh, development culture piled up on itself, but it's one of the only ones. Otherwise, we have this massive continuity back to at least the dawn of the Unix era. We have a huge cultural continuity all the way back there. Other parts of our field aren't quite so continuous. The web was a huge bump, but development itself was has a very long continuity. Uh, but I thought that the DevOps movement was supposed to be like a catalyst in culture change. When it works right, it is. And it actually, we, we betray ourselves whenever we talk of DevOps as a role, a front-end person, a back-end person, and a DevOps person. That's not the way it was originally conceived, and there's a reason for that. It came out of the same shops that extreme programming was coming out of, where whole teams would work together on a project, blending roles pretty seamlessly. And these were small companies, mostly consultancies. Uh, I think Pivotal Labs working in like teams of eight at most. And they would you know, get the roll it out on a server knowledge that that would be some of the developers would do that, that they didn't have a separate system administrator type role. And they really encouraged uh, blending that together. But then you try to apply some of these practices to a larger company that has an existing and entrenched systems infrastructure. It's a lot easier to take your system administrator and say, okay, instead of being on the systems admin team, we're going to take two of you and put you on this development team and the other two of you on this other development team. And we're just going to draw the lines in a new place. And you still end up with this like ops skill set separate from the developer skill set. And we, we betray ourselves whenever we think of DevOps as a role and not a practice that uh, a lot of us can participate in. Front-end developers participate as well. We push our changes live. We, uh, we learn Git. We learn version control. We learn a lot of the systems architecture stuff. We may not be replumbing it, but we are using this infrastructure in a way that it, it's our infrastructure. It's not separate from us. And so the de DevOps has always been about breaking down not just barriers between teams, but barriers between roles. Good DevOps culture doesn't just go, isn't just getting things about, about getting things deployed on servers. It's about getting people to work together through the whole stack and think about the operations all the way from beginning to end as a whole team. And so that means that developers have to be involved in the planning and that designers have to talk to the developers. And some of this comes out of agile process too, of we don't need to write a full specification in advance when we could in fact just talk to each other. And that has worked for better or for worse. Sometimes that has also mean that therefore we can skimp on the prep work, which is uh, deeply unfortunate. But and a uh, side effect of agile is that we threw the baby out with the bathwater when we stopped doing waterfall. I think. Yeah, to some degree. Uh, as much as those are ever things that we ever did purely, it's, it's much more of a spectrum and not a strict division between the two. You know, waterfall has always been the has been a straw man that agile practitioners have held up as well. We don't do it this way. Nobody except maybe NASA has ever done a all design up front, just implement the details afterward shop. Even in places that tried to do that, it never actually happened. You always have these circles in the, and loops in the process where the developers come back and say, that's not possible, not with the, the constraints we've got. Let's rework this. I remember my consulting days where we did big upfront design and had requirements. And if we realized that something wouldn't work or if we had an idea for how to do it differently or if the stakeholders you know, changed their mind about something, there was this whole process in place called change requests. It was a formal document that you wrote up to say, 
you know, the specification says X, but actually we need to do Y. And here's the impact of that. And here's the impact on the timeline. And here's the new set of requirements. And it's very high friction. But the upside of that, and of course, change was really difficult to affect in a waterfall process. But developers wrote documentation and requirements were, were relatively well understood. And I don't see that happening really with agile methodologies. Where I work now, we just introduced the idea of architecture decision records, which I think is a step in the right direction in that it takes the conversations that people have and the collaboration that we do outside of a documentation process and says, here are the things we discussed, here are the things we considered, and here's the decision we made about how to address this and why. And mm-hmm. that, that provides some context for the people who come after when they're trying to wrap their heads around how a system comes together and they ask the inevitable question of like, you know, why is X there or why did they do X in this particular way? And I think having some kind of record of those conversations, a record of the context in which decisions were made can be very, very valuable. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that actually comes back to contempt. A lot of agile methods have contempt for documentation, have contempt for planning, have contempt for anything done up front or anything that is more durable than necessary, which maybe if you're in a marketing organization where everything you build is throwaway, that's great. Maybe if you're building a prototype where you're just exploring a space as quickly as you can, sure. But a lot of us are working on software that lasts years. I'm working on a system that was built in 2011 right now and is being rebuilt. Um, I've worked on systems that were built in the 90s and are just now being rebuilt. And so having contempt for the planning documents has left us with no planning documents to refer to when we go to do this rebuild. We don't know what the feature set of our system is. Nobody knows it in there. And it's it's sad watching that can play out. And uh, it's really easy to get caught in those contempt things because it's one of the easiest tools we've got for shaping culture. I think that happens a lot, too, with um, MVPs in that process gets thrown out the window when you're building an MVP. But if your MVP is successful, it is now the heart of your system. No one ever says that an MVP is throwaway. It becomes the core. And mm-hmm. those rash decisions or those undocumented decisions or the ed- edge cases that led to certain decisions are all lost. And the people who come after to sort of mop up the MVP are living with the consequences of things that they have no understanding for. Yeah, very much so. So you mentioned before that contempt could get assigned to a process like documentation or planning, mm-hmm. something that was just like this, ooh, that thing, don't do not do that, right? Mm-hmm. And then we've got this emotional attribution of this this to this thing. And then if a person, a human, is in a certain role, and that role carries out that process, they're carrying out that thing that we carry contempt for. And then if that role gets assigned contempt then, then the human essentially gets assigned contempt. And the same distancing effect you've been talking about before, where we reduce people to an object and this contempt toward process can kind of come together, it seems like, to just cause this isolation contempt effect in our culture and business. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that we are now reaping the the, uh, results of that, having been contemptuous of a lot of these things in the past. We are now seeing agile processes that fall apart and people who don't feel that they fit in and alienation in developers and in uh, documenters and testers are one that we have widely hold contempt for in agile processes. 
We don't need testers. We write automated tests. So I just fairly recently did a, a keynote at Selenium Conf, and it was the first time I'd ever I'd been immersed in a culture that was just like all the tester people, right? Mm-hmm. And, and what I realized being, you know, coming from the world of, you know, the engineers and the developers, and then you walk into like tester world and it's almost like a group therapy session for all these people that have just been stomped on their whole life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it it was mind blowing and sad and made me feel like just awful for, for the way that because of this role and how people are seen as, you know, less than human. And, and then we have this reduction of what is your output level and your cost as a resource. Oh, well, you're not as important as these developer people because we don't have to pay you as much kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that association as well as like manual testing, ooh, is that, a, you know, contempt assigned to the process mm-hmm. all gets attributed to the people. And then you see more and more of this distancing effect going on. And I just saw these people like hurting and I was like, wow, I had no idea what it was like on the other side of the wall. Yep. Content management and content strategy conferences have that, the group therapy aspect. Project management conferences uh, have that. Management conferences have that. Developer conferences don't have that. I think the other place that's missing is in InfoSec. But ironically, I have a friend who does InfoSec recruiting and InfoSec has this very elitist attitude and that just they're soaking in elitism and contempt. But I learned surprisingly that InfoSec people don't get paid. I assume they would get paid more than developers, but they actually get paid significantly less. Very much so. I'd love to see the same kind of thing happen with security that happened with DevOps. Absolutely. And I think DevOps mindsets can lead that way, but we need to identify what we're contemptuous of, what, why we push that away, and how to integrate those skills into our teams. And one of the things that we run into now is that we're running uh, into team scaling limits. Teams can be no bigger than 12 people. Generally speaking, functional teams are smaller than that. It takes immensely more organization to build teams bigger than that. Uh, it's nonlinear growth as uh, team size scales. So past four or five people, you are starting to have communication dominate the team size. And as you scale up to tens and 12 people on a team, communication has to be formalized or else it will completely override any ability to do work. You'll be in meetings all over the time. And so what we need to do is get better at having consultants, whether paid consultants uh, or not, you know, as outsiders or whether they're just employees that float between teams and consult and have a consulting relationship that way. We need to get better at that because it means that we can actually have these people who are experts in these things available to us rather than having to be the all singing, all dancing developer, documenter, commenter, tester, DevOps person, and deployment engineer. But fixing that's going to be hard because that means that we have to eliminate the contempt and restructure how we think about teams. And that means that a lot of people have to change their attitudes and their practices. And that's, that's going to be very difficult. Developers are an interesting bunch because we, being put on this pedestal, being the cream of the industry, the ones that everybody are seeking after, are it puts us in a place where if we start acknowledging those places where we're contemptuous, start acknowledging the problems in our culture, it feels like it puts us in a precarious position. It doesn't. It makes us better at what we do, but it feels like we are undermining ourselves. And there's techniques to fight that, framing things in terms of uplifting others in terms instead of in terms of knocking down yourself, various things like that help a bunch. 
but what we do to fix these things is it's going to take some work and it takes some real cleverness to make that happen. Okay. At this point in the show, we start out talking about our reflections and some of the things that maybe struck us or stood out during the conversation. So I can start. In the beginning, in your origin story, Aria, you talked about how you found opportunities in a really small place when you, your family moved to the, the more rural part in Colorado. And throughout the conversation, I kept thinking about what you said because you were describing your introduction to the industry and how you started to really love software development as a whole. And that you, you said that you had a, a holistic approach to it. And in what we just discussed, it seems like that might be a solution to some of the issues that we are talking about or some of the culture problems that we see is that a lot of times when we are describing ways that we might be able to make a difference, we're thinking about these big macro problems and how to solve them, but that it might be actually a better plan to start in a really, really small place and use that opportunity to try to think a little bit differently and think outside of our boxes and make an impact there so that that can be spread. Absolutely. I was struck by the part of the conversation where we talked about specialization and how specialization can create boundaries between people in teams and lead to this sort of contemptuous attitude toward other people and other teams. And I actually think about this a lot and how we can, as a generalist, I know I have a different set of skills and a different way of approaching problems and a different way of working with other people. And I do worry about over-specialization and I think how we teach new developers, you know, to your point, Astrid, we do encourage specialization because you have to rapidly develop skills that make you marketable. So I'm going to be thinking about kind of how we can solve that problem, um, especially for early career developers. I think I just had my head in the clouds like this whole time. It's like software seems so small now compared to just what is going on around us as a humanity right now is frightening. And I think, you know, we all feel that and it's, it's so easy to label people as criminals or label people with these kind of negative words that allow us to turn people into objects, into roles, into clowns. I mean, it's the same kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. It's, it creates this context of interaction that allows us to disable empathy in our brains and to push people as distanced away from us as possible to feel disgust and contempt for other people. But the, the other thing that happens is developers are blind to their contempt. Developers don't feel it. Developers are the ones that are sitting on top. And if you take that same metaphor and look kind of what's happening it's interesting because you see these people that are in pain. You see these people that see themselves as victims that are, you know, afraid and lost in that. And their solution to their pain is to see other people with contempt because it gives them an outlet for all that pain inside them to, you know, have some way for that to go. And it's so easy when people commit atrocities to forget that there is humanity inside them. And as problems raise and around us, I think that's the thing that we all have to remember is that inside of us, there is a soul, you know, inside of us, we all have a soul. And it would be good for us to remember that. Yeah, very much so. Aria, what are your thoughts after our conversation? I was kind of struck by just how solidly contempt connects 
to everything, uh, how much it has driven so much of our culture and how little we talk about the things that work well. It kind of caught me off guard that that's where things stayed so much. Because I know so many developers who are actually joyful and love what they do, and they love teaching. And there's a whole new model that we don't talk about nearly enough. You know, we talk about the failures of the old model a little bit, but there are some people who are very, very successful and to build some fantastic products and build fantastic tools for other people and really love what they do. And it makes me want to go seek them out and start telling new stories, start telling the stories of the people who are doing it wonderfully. Thank you very much for being on the show today, Arya. Um, it was a great conversation. We really enjoyed having you. Thank you. I want to remind people that if you like the kinds of conversations that we have on Greater Than Code, you can support us materially by going to patreon.com slash greater than code. All patrons, regardless of their pledge level, get access to our patron-only Slack community where you can have conversations with other members of the community and panelists and guests to continue talking about the topics that we talk about on the show. So please consider giving to us through Patreon. Also, we're looking for corporate sponsors. So if your company wants to support these conversations, they are definitely welcome to do so. Go to greaterthancode.com slash sponsors. And we will talk to you all in a couple of weeks.